The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Monstrous Regiment, featuring a roundtable of Dominion women seeking to honor Jesus Christ in applying God's Word fearlessly and faithfully in all callings and seasons of life, both in and out of the home, reversing the curse and smashing pagan strongholds. What is biblical modesty? Is it the right number of layers from shoulder to knee? Does it have anything at all to do with spaghetti straps? Is it the safeguard of purity? I'm Kay Robinson, and we'll discuss all this and more on today's Monstrous Regimen. I have to apologize in advance. I'm a little bit sick, uh, so I'm losing my voice a little bit, and um, didn't get much sleep last night, so if my thoughts are a little bit scattered, if you feel like something's in the wrong place, it probably is, but I trust you guys that you can put this together. So I want to talk about um, modesty culture. If you've been a part of evangelicalism at all in the past 30 years, your life has been impacted either positively or negatively, but in bigger ways than you realize by what I'm going to refer to as modesty culture. I want to be clear at the outset that modesty, as it's talked about in the Bible, and modesty culture are not the same thing, and in many ways are actually polar opposites. So when you hear me critique modesty culture, as I'm about to do, what you're not hearing is an argument against true modesty or for lasciviousness. In fact, it's my belief that modesty culture has contributed more to the spread of sexual immorality in the church than we may ever be able to measure. Modesty culture defines the female body as an object primarily existing for the purpose of being experienced by a male body, rather than existing for its own sake or existing primarily as a vessel for a human soul to occupy for the course of a human lifetime. By contrast, the male body is understood as existing primarily for the purpose of housing a human soul and is understood as an experiencer and agent, not solely as an experience had by others. This is expressed both implicitly and explicitly. <clears throat> Pardon me. I have been a churchgoer and an active participant in Christian circles for more than 30 years, and in that time I've seen much said on the topic of modesty. There are dozens and dozens of blogs, memes, and even diagrams instructing women on how and why to be biblically modest. Some of these are more demeaning in tone than others, but they all basically agree on content to varying degrees. I've seen the width of straps analyzed, the length of skirts and shorts, charts on skin coverage, assertions that women should never wear peach-colored t-shirts because it looks too much like skin, that they should avoid lace, which looks too much like lingerie, that they should never wear pants or makeup, and literally hundreds of other rules laid out by various groups and individuals. In fact, I've seen a recent rash of memes which depict modest and immodest women in order to instruct women how to dress. These are particularly baffling since the image of the immodest woman itself violates all of the stated reasons for modesty, but we don't have time to unpack all of that right now. Different people fall in different places on the scale, and standards vary by community, but most people seem to agree that there must be some rules, or else otherwise godly women will cast off all restraint and begin roaming the streets topless. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but not that much. <laughs> I've been given lists of extremely specific sexual triggers of men that I know, so I know what to avoid wearing. I've been accused at great length of advocating immodesty, or in one case, wanton public nudity, 
And I've seen other people in these conversations accused of wanting to be like the world, of wanting to be lusted after, of one, of dressing like a whore, of not loving their brothers, of not caring about the word of God, and the list goes on. In online conversations about modesty, I've seen such gems as, if you dress like a whore, you might get looked at like you're one. Or, the Bible's pretty clear in causing your brother to sin. Women don't get a free pass on this. Or, a man insisting that dressing immodestly, according to his standard, is defrauding a brother by making a sexual offer which he cannot take advantage of. Um, A man describing a rape scenario in graphic detail. Um, blaming the rape victim's outfit for the event and suggesting that the woman who objected to it did so because she identifies with the woman he described as a slut. A prominent pastor explaining that child rapist Larry Nasser's crimes are the natural result of young girls wearing leotards in the presence of red-blooded American men. A man insisting that women wearing burqas would, in fact, solve the problem of male lust. A woman stating that shoulders should not be shown because they cause men to think about kissing them. I could go on for days. The constant theme, though, is that the female body is a dangerous temptation that must be tucked away for the safety of everyone. These things are pretty much par for the course for people who call themselves by the name of the living God, and we should be ashamed of that reality. What I intend to propose in this episode is that the church has for some time now badly misinterpreted biblical admonitions regarding modesty and purity, though some of the purity culture conversation will need to be tackled at another time, and as a result has created a culture that has wrought terrible damage to both men and women, treating one as a perpetual child incapable of self-government and the other as a perpetual beast ruled by instinct and incapable of self-control. Far from promoting real purity of heart and thought, it has produced a Christian culture utterly obsessed with sex. Far from turning hearts and thoughts toward Christ and encouraging maturity and lordship in the lives of believers, it has stunted our growth and handicapped our efforts both to function and to advance the kingdom. It has made men and women enemy combatants rather than harmonious co-laborers for the cause of Christ. By the testimony of men who have been freed from these mindsets, it has created fear and bitterness in men toward women. It has framed women as temptresses by nature. It has taught women and young girls that they are primarily sexual objects and that their existence is a threat to male purity, that it is their responsibility to keep men holy as well as protect themselves from assault, and that their decisions should be primarily driven by how they are experienced by men around them. It's weakened the minds of men, making them ill-equipped to function and spread the gospel in a lost world, leaving them desperate to control their external environment, hopeless against temptation, and with no internal mechanism for resisting sin. Men who white-knuckle their way through church services for fear of seeing a woman's tank top strap will not be able to successfully preach with compassion and brotherly love to lost women in the public square. Modesty culture has utterly hamstrung the kingdom-building partnership that should exist between brothers and sisters in Christ. We have sexualized absolutely everything. Breastfeeding, the bodies of small children, eye contact, platonic communication, everything. So, let's take a look at a few of the most common. These aren't, not by any stretch of the imagination, are all, these all the myths associated with or propagated by Um, modesty culture. But let's take a few of the myths regarding what modesty is and isn't so we can begin to think rightly about this issue. Okay, 
Myth number one, modesty is about the amount of skin that is covered and context doesn't matter. This most common myth is the idea that modesty primarily is defined by whether a woman's body is revealed too much by the clothes she wears. Conversations about modesty often revolve around what parts of the body and how much are allowed to be exposed, and not just exposed, but in any way noticeable. In some cases, the emphasis is not just on whether she's covered, but on whether she's discernible as a female at all. There is a subconscious belief that modesty is defined as making sure no one notices that your body is female-shaped. We're shown images of the modest woman we're to emulate, and she's often petite, thin, and has small breasts. There is, of course, nothing wrong with being built that way, but the result of this attitude is that women who are naturally more curvy or differently endowed are considered by default less modest than their sisters by virtue of being less able to hide the shape of their bodies. But is any of this the biblical definition of modesty? The most common scripture quoted in reference to modesty is 1 Timothy 2.8, which says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. The word modesty used in this scripture is the Greek word kosmios, which means orderly, decorous, of good behavior. This word is used in one other instance, one chapter later, when Paul says about elders, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Here the phrase is translated, depending on your translation, of good behavior or self-controlled. Here again we see the same theme, temperance, self-control, good behavior. In both cases, it includes no reference to exposed flesh or covered flesh. Unless we think Paul is instructing women to go around dressed only in their good deeds, we see it's not really about clothing at all. In both cases, the context of the surrounding chapters indicates that Paul is speaking about behavior and character, not particulars of clothing. Since Paul says modesty and self-control, it's by no means a stretch to read the words as synonyms. Further, Castle's Latin Dictionary, printed in 1887, defines the root word of modesty, modestia, as 1. Moderation or temperance, Two, respect, obedience to authority. Three, good practical judgment. And finally, mildness. So modestia in the Latin has the primary meaning of temperance, which is literally the, literally the virtue of self-control. Um, if you want some really interesting commentary on that, my co-host Susanna Roundtree will tell you all about Edmund Spencer's um, The Fairy Queen and how Spencer described modesty and temperance as primarily self-control on the part of the man and thought it was a pretty low bar. Um, further, we know from history that what is considered modest and what is considered seductive varies widely from culture to culture and time to time. In the account of Judah's encounter with um, Tamar in Genesis 38, or Tamar, I don't know how to say that, we, saw, we see that when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. A prostitute during this time period was likely clothed head to toe, including veil. What she wore indicated her sexual availability, but not through excessively exposed skin. Although in this case it appears a veil was what indicated her status as a prostitute, we know from other accounts that there were multiple other reasons and occasions women wore veils. In other words, it wasn't the article of clothing itself that was inherently immodest, but the context in which it was worn. Likewise, during the 1600s to 1800s, women often wore low-cut dresses that exposed a good deal of cleavage, 
but extended all the way to the ground. As a result, breasts were largely desexualized, while ankles were considered scandalously sexy. In Les Miserables, a character mentions staring slyly at the ankles of the laundresses as these women climb into their carts. Yet today, anything below the knees is actually considered one of the safest areas. This makes those charts explaining what exactly is and isn't biblically modest seem a bit foolish, doesn't it? But if the premise about what it is and why it's important are wrong from the outset, we shouldn't be surprised that the resulting practices are also wrong. Here is a shocking truth. I may lose some of you here. I have seen naked women who were modest and fully clothed women who were not. I've seen photos of women giving birth or breastfeeding who were entirely chaste and pure. I'm a birth photographer myself and have never once seen a woman giving birth in a seductive or sexually suggestive way. In fact, not to blow anyone's mind, but nursing covers and one-way glass are a recent development. The godly women that scripture tells us to mimic very likely fed their children in public, in, in Christian communities, openly. This would be expected and common and considered modest in a community in which bodies were not viewed primarily through a sexual lens. Likewise, I've seen women clothed head to toe who were behaving seductively or who were demonstrating the pride and arrogance, flaunting of wealth and privilege that the modesty passages specifically forbid. In fact, in some cases, the modesty itself is immodest as the obsession with meeting all the right standards becomes a point of pride, a badge of holiness, and therefore an actual violation of the command to be modest. <clears throat> it seems that, just as Jesus pointed out over and over throughout Scripture, the heart, character, and behavior of a person are of infinitely more importance than externals, like whether their shoulders show, or whether they wear tassels on their prayer shawls, or they refrain from picking grain on the Sabbath. Taking a look at extreme modesty cultures only confirms this. Does anyone think that lust is not a problem in Saudi Arabia? Of course not. When all emphasis is placed on external controls and no internal mechanism exists with which to resist sin, sin flourishes. I've had many, many, many men make sexual comments to me while I was in a boxy, camouflage military uniform that made it literally impossible to differentiate my body from any of the males around me. But one of these men told me openly that the full coverage only made him imagine more vividly what could be underneath. His lust was entirely unhindered by my unflattering and entirely modest apparel, because his lust was about his mind, not about my outfit, which leads us directly to the second myth. Myth number two says that modesty is about sex. The idea here is that the primary reason for modesty is to avoid presenting a sexual temptation to men. This is why some interpret modesty as going beyond skin real estate and equate it to avoidance of anything that might be considered attractive, including makeup, fashionable jewelry, or stylish clothing. But again, this emphasis on lust and sex is entirely lacking in scripture. The primary passages having to do with modesty have little or no sexual context. For example, the passage in 1 Timothy is smack in the middle of an entire chapter about orderliness, um, in the church about internal holiness, godly humility, and temperance. Again, self-control. Nothing is said here at all about stumbling a brother, about protecting a brother, or about sex at all. Instead, this and other scriptures seem to focus on an attitude of humility and an attitude that does not include crass displays of wealth and that desires to glorify God rather than self. Likewise, the Apostle Peter says, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, 
with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is which in God's sight is very precious. Again, we're here admonished to be beautiful by virtue of our godliness and holy lives, rather than be relying on our outward appearance. Again, there's a noticeable absence of any sexual context. We don't see Paul saying, but let your adornment be past the knees and over the shoulders for the protection of all the men around you. The only things he specifically mentions are direct references to ostentatious displays of wealth, like expensive jewelry or gilded Roman hairstyles. Things that <clears throat> extremely wealthy women would wear and be tempted to flaunt in a community of Christians where not everyone was wealthy. In fact, it seems that the primary purpose of the apostolic admissions to, admonitions to modesty was to turn our attention away from focusing on outward appearance and toward focusing on a posture of Christ-like humility and love. It seems to me that the very last thing intended by the apostles was an intense focus and scrutiny on outward appearance. The outward appearance is very often not a good gauge of someone's internal state. Yet the culture we've created is one in which women must think constantly about sex when they dress themselves, rather than thinking about whether what we wear will be appropriate for the weather or for our own comfort or for our ability to complete the day's activities. We're instead concerned primarily with whether they will cause or allow someone to look at our bodies and think of sexual thoughts, a focus which is absent in scripture. Of course, scripture does condemn all forms of sexual immorality, including adultery, fornication, lust, and intentional seduction by either sex. But there's a world of difference between wearing clothing that is widely known to communicate sexual availability, which is something a godly woman wouldn't do, and wearing a comfortable outfit in which to function, play, and work, which fails to meet some arbitrary standard based on the individual and often porn-warped sexual triggers of people around you. Pardon me. <clears throat> Part of the reason for this myth Honestly, this is going to be harsh, but it's just narcissism. I read the following comment on our page just today. You ladies doll yourselves up when you are out and about when you're single, and why is that? To garner the attention of a man. I've heard variations of this dozens of times, and I don't want to hurt the feelings of any men watching this, but the truth is that the vast majority of us do not dress with you in mind at all. When we dress fashionably or wear makeup or choose a cute outfit, it's a method of, method of artistic expression because we enjoy beauty, because it makes it feel, us feel confident, because our friends appreciate it. It has nothing to do with garnering the attention of a man. But of course, if men believe that women dress primarily for male attention, then it's no great leap to assume that anything a woman wears that men find attractive was worn specifically to provoke sexual thoughts in them and must therefore be immodest. The reality is that we don't want our Christian brothers or random strangers to think sexual thoughts about us as we're going about our day. <clears throat> One of my co-hosts put it better earlier today when she said, I do not desire or enjoy the unsolicited sexual attention of men. I dress nicely, including makeup and jewelry, because I enjoy doing so, because how I present myself to others matters beyond my sexual availability and desirability because it communicates competence, confidence, and good taste in my interactions, because it establishes my style and gives people I meet an accurate first impression of who they're dealing with, because it's respectful of the establishments I'm entering, because it makes me feel good, in short, for the same reasons men also choose their clothes and appearance. This is as it should be. Our thoughts about what to wear should have nothing whatever to do with whether we get sexual attention from a man. But, as we previously discussed, if the premise is wrong, so will the practice be. 
If modesty revolves around sex, then no matter what part of the body is covered or uncovered, it will be viewed through the lens of sex. When you start from the premise that modesty is a command for women to prevent men from lusting after them, you end up with things like the following quotes from Christian men. Sisters, if you would not want men to describe the minutiae of every curve and subtle line of your chest, thighs, or lower regions of your, <laughs> to your face, then don't dress in a way that writes out that detailed narrative. I would contend that this post itself is a breach of modesty, as it introduces a sexual context between a man and his Christian sisters that should not exist. But the implication behind it, and other comments such as the previously quoted, if you dress like a whore, you'll be looked at like a whore, is that looking at a woman as a whore is entirely acceptable if she's asking for it, as if what she wears makes her bear less of God's image. Christian men say this. The reality is that an actual brother, if he saw his sister dressed like a prostitute, by which I do not mean wearing spaghetti straps, would be embarrassed for her and concerned for her dignity, but he would not be violating her in his mind and justifying it to himself and to others. Myth number three says, if there are no rules in place, women will cast off restraint. The idea here goes something like this. If there's not an agreed-upon standard, how will we prevent women from wearing things we disapprove of? The answer, of course, is you don't. Without fail, every time the discussion about modesty comes up, someone says, so you're saying women should dress however they want? Yes. I mean, and no. No in the sense that no one should ever do what they want if what they want is to sin. So if what women want is to dress in a way that's objectively sinful or with sinful motives which only they can know, then no, they shouldn't do that. But this is a matter of conscience between them and God, not a matter of government or regulation by ruling authorities. I don't accept the implicit premise of this question, which is that godly and regenerate women want to dress seductively and want to tempt men to lust after them, and the only thing holding them back from doing so is the rules. If we believe that women are adults who are capable of self-government, that Christian women are regenerate and that they desire to please the Lord, then it goes without saying that they don't want to dress in a way that is contrary to those realities. Of course, there is such a thing as sanctification and increased understanding, but this doesn't occur through the creation of rules and extra-biblical standards. In fact, such lists of rules actively militate against real holiness as we recognize in every other area. Sanctification for a saved woman occurs as she becomes more aware of her value as an image-bearer, not as she becomes more compliant to the church hemline regulations. Throwing a shirt at a woman, as happened to a perfectly modest friend of mine, and telling her to put it on does not encourage modesty. Unless we want to create yet another generation of whitewashed tombs with perfect exteriors but full of dead women's bones, micromanaging women's wardrobes is not the way to achieve purity. Myth number four says that dressing modesty, modestly will protect you from sexual assault. This is one of the most pernicious and dangerous modesty myths. It's widely believed and repeated that dressing immodestly is an invitation to sexual assault and makes women more vulnerable to it. This is where you hear things like, Woman after woman showed up drunk and half naked. I wonder how many left saying, Me too. Proponents of this myth, for the most part, insist that they don't exactly blame a sexual assault victim for her attack, but then go on to add that what she was wearing is relevant to it. After all, if you leave your wallet on the seat of your car, the saying goes, and the door's unlocked, 
you've presented an offer too good for a thief to pass up, right? Aside from affirming through analogies like this that women are objects in ways which I'll get into momentarily, this myth ignores all the dynamics of sexual assault, gives women a false sense of security, promotes a prosperity gospel, and leads to an inevitable failure to show compassion to assault victims. The reality is that predators do not rape and assault because they are overwhelmed by sexual temptation, nor do they choose their targets because they're tempted by the amount of thigh or cleavage they see. Rape and assault are about power and entitlement, and victims are chosen based on vulnerability and opportunity. Very often the perceived good girl is the most vulnerable and ideal target. We've raised a generation of women who believe they can protect themselves from being violated by making sure they check all the modesty boxes, when in reality the longest of skirts are often the perfect cover for the predatorial pastor, uncle, or trusted adult. Women who believe that assault happens only to scantily clad women in alleyways are unprepared to face the trusted counselor who rapes them on the floor of his youth pastor office or who grooms them as children to believe he cares about them and persuades them to acquiesce to his advances and follow his leadership. This also contributes massively to the church's failure to compassionately come to the aid of sexual assault victims, since deep down we believe that they must have asked for it, and that if they just did all the right things that we did, it wouldn't have happened to them. This is nothing short of a works-based prosperity gospel that says, follow all the rules and you'll be safe from harm when what we ought to be teaching young women is to obey God because they love him, to lean on him for strength when harm comes, and to minister to those in need. <clears throat> Myth number five, this is one of my favorites, you just don't know how a man's mind works. I don't deny that much of what goes on in a man's mind is baffling to me. <laughs> I don't understand or identify with my friend Toby's desire to watch pimple-popping videos. I never will. I do know how the gospel works, though, and I believe what scripture says about the renewing of our minds. I do believe, I'm sorry, I do not believe, as I have been repeatedly told, that God wired men to view women as sexual objects. I do not believe, as I have been repeatedly told, that there is no freedom for the minds of men or that they are incapable of overcoming lust. I know many good and godly men who are able to look at me and my Christian sisters with no temptation. I do understand that 70% of evangelical men view pornography and that this violation of image bearers warps the mind and imagination in serious ways. But I also believe in the redemptive power of Christ. Beyond this, we all know it's possible to look at a member of the opposite sex in a non-erotic way because most of us have siblings or family members, any of whom we could see entirely naked without the smallest stirring of lust. There is certainly some merit to making accommodations for the weakness of others. I don't deny that at all, out of love. In fact, if for some highly inappropriate reason I become privy to the sexual weaknesses of any of my brothers, you better believe I'll go out of my way to avoid those specific triggers, out of love for both them and myself. I don't want my brothers looking at me as other than a sister. But in these cases, my choice to make accommodations for the weaker brother is just that, for the sake of the weaker brother. It's not about me getting better or getting more modest or sinning less. As Joseph Foreman said recently, the art of the Pharisee is to be able to take anything that Jesus or the law says and turn it into a stick to beat the living crap out of the little ones, all the time pleading that he is the one, one of the little ones needing protection, and yet at the same time one of the mighty men who has authority to beat the little ones to a pulp. 
To use one's own weakness as a tool to tie burdens around the necks of others is a tyrannical refusal to mature in Christ yourself and an insistence that no one else reach maturity either. It's noteworthy that the Bible never treats modesty as the antidote to lust. Let's take a look at some of the scriptures that deal with lust. Matthew 5.29 If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. In case there's any confusion about whether this scripture is about lust, let's look at the verse right before it, Matthew 5.28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jeremiah 1, I'm sorry, James 1, 14 through 15. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. These are just a few examples, but in each case, the onus is placed entirely on the person who is lusting or tempted to lust, and no mention is made of being caused to sin by the object of the person's lust. Someone will no doubt quote to me Jesus' words about millstones tied around necks, but of course the context of Matthew 18 makes it clear what Jesus means here. He says at that time, The disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones to sin It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Here we must remember that the relationship between self-governing adults is not the relationship between adults and children. Jesus has strong words for those who would lead innocent little ones to sin, and immediately afterward, equally strong words for how adults should brutally address their own sin, telling us to cut off our own hands and pluck out our own eyes if they cause us to sin. Jesus is not referring to adult Christian men as these little ones. He's referring to little ones. Jesus does say, Woe to those through whom temptation comes. And there will no doubt be heavy consequences for everyone who intentionally, um, I'm sorry, who intentionally leads anyone into any kind of sin, which of course does not mean anyone whose mere existence in a female body is a temptation or whose choice to dress comfortably and functionally sets off some arbitrary trigger without their knowledge or will. But in the end, when each of us stands before God alone, not one of us is going to be able to say, these women you gave me. Someone will again quote Proverbs 7, speaking of the adulterous woman. Of course, I would never deny that sinful women exist who seek to exploit the weaknesses of others or who behave in a seductive manner, which is not to be confused with shopping in a tank top. But it's once again noteworthy that Proverbs 7 is directed at a young man, instructing him to avoid the place where this woman is. Not saying that women don't sin, or the scripture doesn't rebuke sin, but Proverbs 7 does not treat the young man as a victim of all the world's women, or tell him to avoid them or control their wardrobes, but instead admonishes him to recognize the one who behaves in a brazen and sinful way, and go out of his way to avoid going willfully into the trap laid for him. So we see here not that there is no such thing as a sinful woman, but that covering up all women is not the answer to the problem of lust. Self-control and internal holiness is.
the overarching myth that encompasses all these other myths is that women are objects. The hard truth is that while people who perpetuate any of these myths would universally agree that the objectification of women is bad and wrong, the ways they think and talk about the topic betray the opposite belief. Following are some actual quotes or variations of quotes that I've heard over and over again in these conversations from Christians, some of whom I like and respect. Quote, it's like waving hot pizza or french fries in front of a starving man and telling him he can't have them. Quote, you wouldn't drink alcohol around an alcoholic, would you? Quote, if you leave your car unlocked, you make it easier for a thief to steal it. Beyond this, women are told from a very young age to avoid sexual immorality not because it's pleasing to God to do so, but because by engaging in sexual immorality, they're robbing their future husbands of what rightfully belongs to them. I've heard it argued that rape is only a capital crime when the woman is betrothed because it's wrong to steal another man's sex, not that it's wrong to violate a woman's body. Listen carefully. Women are not commodities which actual image bearers must avoid partaking in for the sake of their own health or to avoid punishment. By going to the grocery store, we're not waving our existence under the noses of men. Also, sex is not essential to staying alive, and men who are denied sex are not starving. We're not addictive substances that an actual image bearer must avoid consuming. Your relationship to alcohol and whether you consume it or not impacts you, but it has no impact on alcohol. Your relationship to women around you and whether you violate them in your heart or actions impacts both you and them. All the previous analogies break down because you can keep money locked up or you can swear off alcohol for life so as not to stumble others, but as a woman, we cannot keep ourselves locked up or swear off hips or breasts for life. They are literally part of who we are. Any response to female objectification that is more appropriate to an object than to a living human being made in the image of God is just going to compound the problem of objectification. Women are image bearers themselves. Partners, friends, companions, co-laborers, co-belligerents. They exist entirely separately from how they are experienced by men around them. To continue to pro promote the idea that women are hot french fries, and the best we can do is keep them carefully hidden so as not to tempt anyone to consume them, is to agree with the world that women are bodies first and foremost, which are either vessels for pleasure or means of temptation, objects to be exploited or objects to be covered up to protect others. When we make other people's existence referential to our own, we elevate ourselves above our neighbors as human beings and we besmirch and efface the image of God in humanity and we elevate our own desires above God's standards. We're almost done. So what's the answer to this problem? The answer is not diagrams of hemlines. It's not constantly, constantly, constantly berating women about the particulars of their clothing. Am I promoting immodesty? Of course not. If you're still asking that question at this point, you may need to go back and listen again. Of course I believe women should behave in holy and godly ways. I agree with scripture that women should let their beauty be expressed by their inward character and godly lives, and that we ought to turn our attention away from the heavy emphasis on external regulations and turn it toward maintaining a right heart toward God and our neighbors. I agree with scripture that we ought not to flaunt our wealth or privilege. I agree with scripture that we must refrain from sexual immorality. I agree with Romans 14.13, which says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, 
but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Though this has been frequently used in modesty debates to indicate that women are themselves stumbling blocks which must not be placed in the sight of a brother, I would contend that those who judge the particulars of a woman's wardrobe are guilty of putting a stumbling block in front of her as they attempt to replace self-government and the role of the Holy Spirit in her life. Modesty is not the answer to lust. Modesty is the answer to pride and extravagance. Self-control and love for God and our neighbor is the answer to lust. Taking our thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ is the answer to lust. There is so much more that can be said about all of this, but this is a good starting point. Let's not let the words brother and sister be merely lip service. Let's love one another as ourselves and do honor to one another as image bearers of God and learn to experience one another in other than erotic contexts. Thank you for listening. This has been The Monstrous Regiment. Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Regiment. We hope this podcast inspires and equips you to go and exercise dominion for Christ's kingdom. Terrible as an army with banners. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.